We then teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. We just confess this together of Christ, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, whom our creed refers to as the Mother of God. This term has been incredibly controversial in church history, the Mother of God. And because of all of its controversy, for that reason, the East and the Western churches, which we defined last week, have dogmatically defined that Mary must be referred to as the Mother of God. But as we've seen, a lot of times the decisions the churches of the East and West make about Mary, we as Protestants don't follow in those traditions. What about this one? Do we agree that it's appropriate to refer to Mary as the mother of God? And why is it such a controversial phrase? And maybe most importantly, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, those are the three things I want us to answer today. But first, let us hear from the Word. Would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we will read verses 5 through 8 together. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. And when you get there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Thus saith the Lord, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, as I said, we've been working through what I consider a monumental project in the history of the Christian church, this Chalcedonian creed, which attempted to, as best as humanly possible, articulate this incredibly mysterious concept of the incarnation, which is just a fancy word for God becoming man. And like most church councils throughout history, the reason the council was created at all was to combat heresies and false opinions that were gaining in popularity in the Christian church. In other words, Chalcedon arose because there were errors that needed to be addressed. And the the primary error that Chalcedon was seeking to respond to was an error known as Nestorianism, which gets its name from its most prominent teacher, Nestorius. The issue arose when Nestorius objected to a term in Greek that he had been hearing about Mary. The Greek word is pronounced differently. um, Just as a brief side note, uh, we have lots of people who are able to read what's called Koine Greek, which is the kind of Greek the Bible was written in. It's It's a language that can be read. Lots of people know it, understand it. But most of the pronunciations have been lost on us. So sometimes Greek scholars will differ on how to pronounce the certain words. So some people refer to this word as theotokos. Some call it theotokos. So however you prefer it, potatoes, potatoes, you can have it. But that was the word that Nestorius was objecting to. He was objecting 
to hearing Mary referred to as the Theotokos. A literal translation of this word means God-bearer. Theos, God, tokos is to bear, to birth, the God-birth or the God-bearer. But typically, it's translated a little less literally. And this is where we get our English phrase, the mother of God. Mary was being referred to as the Theotokos, or the mother of God. Now, Nestorius, who was living in the early 5th century, so the early 400s, was growing concerned by a lot of the rhetoric that he was hearing about Mary. And the final straw that broke the camel's back for Nestorius was this concept of the Theotokos, the mother of God. He had severe reservations about this title, and he began publicly objecting to it, and so sides were formed. And we had Nestorius and his group objecting to it, and he primarily went to battle with a man named Cyril. So it was Cyril versus Nestorius. You see, Nestorius and his group, the Nestorians, they thought it was inappropriate to refer to Mary as the mother of God because Mary is not the mother of divinity. God comes before Mary. She can't be the mother of divinity. So Nestorius was trying to correct the church with a different term, Christotokos or Christotokos, the mother of Christ. Don't call Mary the mother of God. Call her the mother of Christ because she is only the mother of his humanity. She's not the mother of his divinity, so we shouldn't call her the mother of God. She's not the mother of his divine nature. She is only the mother of his human nature. So he thought it was a her a heretical to call Mary the mother of God. Cyril and his group, on the other hand, passionately disagreed with him. They believed that calling Mary, the mother of God, did a number of things. Number one, it safeguards Christ's divinity from his earliest stage. Because there, were, there was, both in the ancient church and in the medieval church, there was another heresy that rose up called adoptionism, which believed that Jesus at some point in his life became the son of God. And so to fight against this, we wanted to affirm that Jesus is the son of God, which is a divine term. He is fully God from the moment of his conception. When Mary gave birth to that child, that child was fully God. He did not become God later on. He was God from the moment of his birth. And so we safeguard his, his, his identity by referring to Mary not as the mother of the one who would become God, but as the mother of God. But he also saw this as an important title to keep Christ unified. Rather than Nestorius splitting Christ up into human nature over here or divine nature over here, no, there's only one person, and he is both God and man. So we can call him God or we can call him man. Mary was the mother of the man and the God because there is one person here. So which side do we fall on? Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, that's why the Council of Chalcedon met. Actually, there was a, a council that met before Chalcedon called the Council of Ephesus. But the problem was Ephesus was Cyril's home church and no Nestorians were represented at the council. So you can imagine how that council went. So after Ephesus, a new emperor took over and the emperor said, listen, no one is affirming Ephesus because it wasn't a fair fight. So we need a council with a fair fight. So then they convened Chalcedon and there was both Cyril's side and Nestorius' side present to debate, to debate and to craft this creed. And as you can see, the creed, the fathers of Chalcedon, ultimately sided with Cyril. That Mary is the mother of God. And so since this time, all churches around the world 
have condemned any person who is unwilling to refer to Mary as the Theotokos. They have referred to those people as Nestorians. So what about the Protestant church? Do we as evangelicals object to the term mother of God? Do we consider this one of the many Marian myths that we've been examining over Advent season? Well, you're going to find out that this Sunday is going to go a little differently than the last three Sundays. The last three Sundays, we've looked at Marian legends that we disagree with. We do not believe that Mary is a co-mediatrix. We do not believe that Mary was sinless. We do not believe that Mary bodily assumed into heaven. But Protestants historically have affirmed that, yes, Mary is the mother of God. We, like the Roman Catholic Church, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, we embrace the title Theotokos. We side with Cyril. We side with Chalcedon. However, we are a little bit more in the middle than these other churches because Protestants, while they affirm the title, we are much more sympathetic to Nestorius' concerns than any of the other churches around the world. We are, in other words, we are not nearly as dogmatic about the title as the other churches. You cannot join the other churches if you're not willing to call Mary Theotokos. You can typically join a Protestant church if you object to the term. So we affirm it, but we're not nearly as dogmatic. We are sympathetic to some of the things that Nestorius was concerned about. And so what I want us to do with the rest of our time is first, I, I want to just show you briefly why we think this is a biblically appropriate term. But then I want to show you why we're also sympathetic to the concerns, and then that will lead nicely into what this all has to do with Advent, okay? So let's just look at why do we affirm Theotokos? Why would I make you recite that? Why would I put those words into your mouth like I just did? You see, the problem with Nestorianism is that it will ultimately lead to believing that Christ is two persons. What Chalcedon established is that Christ is one person with two natures. And that's what we just affirmed. But what Nestorianism leads to, whether they know it or not, will ultimately be a two-personed Christ. The human Christ and the divine Christ. And we don't want to do that. There's only one Christ. There's only one Jesus. Nestorius wanted to distinguish between the natures so much that by saying that Mary was not the mother of God, but only the mother of his humanity, he was unintentionally separating Christ's humanity and divinity so much that what people were eventually espousing is that Mary was the mother of the human Jesus, but not the divine Jesus. There's only one Jesus. Mary did not, in other words, the stories wanted to say Mary is only the mother of Christ's human nature. The problem with that is mothers don't give births to natures. They give birth to people. These babies in our congregation are not natures. They're persons. Mary is not the mother of the human nature of Christ because that doesn't make sense. She's the mother of Jesus Christ who is one person, both God and man. So we affirm that because Jesus is one person, God and man, Mary is the mother of the God-man. She is the mother of God. The, the, the fancy way to say it, we talked about this in our Sunday school, the fancy way of talking about it is that when Nestorius was ultimately disagreeing with that we affirm is that while Christ has two natures, whatever is true of either nature can be said of the whole person. Whatever's true of either nature can be said of the whole person. So this is why we can say something like, Jesus Christ died on a cross. 
You can say that. You do not have to say the human nature of the eternal word died on a cross. A nature didn't just die there. A person died there. Jesus died on a cross, not the human nature cried on a cross. This is why we don't have to open up our Bibles and we'll never read something like the human nature of Jesus turned water into wine. No, Jesus turned water into wine. He has two natures, but he is one person. And whatever's true of the nature can be spoken of the whole person. On the other side, this is why we don't say, the, the book of John, for example, talks about how Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. Nestorius would want to come along to John and say, Ah, John, you're not distinguishing between the natures there. Jesus didn't know what was in the hearts of men. The divine nature knew it was in the hearts of men, right? Because human natures are not all-knowing. So his human nature didn't know that, his divine nature. He would be criticizing the way the Bible is written. And once you start criticizing the way the Bible is written, you're wrong. <laughs> Jesus can be spoken of as one person because he is one person. Let me just show you a couple biblical examples. You don't have to turn there. I've got these on the screen for you. Acts 20:28 20, says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Grammatically speaking, who is it that obtained the church? Who's the he that shed his blood? God. You know what Nestorius, Nestorius would want to come in and say, Paul, 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 you are not talking about the incarnation rightly, Paul. You see, God doesn't have blood. God can't shed his blood. So, Paul, here's what you should have said. You should have said, if you were a better theologian, Paul, if you were a smarter theologian, Paul, you would have said to care for the church of God, which the human nature of Christ obtained with his own blood. Because God cannot shed his blood. That's what the Nestorians would say. So really what this is a battle between is who's a more reliable theologian, Paul or Nestorius? Paul is very comfortable saying God shed his blood. But Paul also knows that, yes, strictly speaking, according to God's divine essence, there is no blood to be shed. But whatever is true of either nature can be true of the whole person. Jesus Christ had blood. So you can say Jesus had blood. You don't have to say the human nature has blood. Jesus Christ is God. You don't have to say just the divine nature. So Jesus is both man and God. So when Jesus died, God died. No, no, God technically can't die. Jesus is one person. God died on a cross. That's what Paul is saying. He, he says it again in 1 Corinthians 2.8, speaking of the gospel. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Lord of glory is a divine title. No mere human being can possibly be the Lord of glory because glory existed before you did. <laughs> You can't be the Lord of glory. Only God can be the Lord of glory. So here we have a text where the Apostle Paul is saying God was crucified. Again, the Nestorian wants, the Nestorian wants to come along and say, oh no, technically speaking, God can't die. So if Paul was a better theologian, he would have said they would not have crucified the human nature of the Lord of glory. But Paul doesn't feel the need to speak that way, does he? And so here's the logic behind the Theotokos. If God can bleed, if God can be crucified, does it not follow that God can be born? If we can speak of God shedding his blood for the church, why can't we speak of God having a mother? This was what the fathers argued at Chalcedon, that Christ is one person. What's true of either nature can be spoken of the whole person. So yes, Christ is God. Christ was born of Mary. So Mary is the mother of God. 
And that's why we affirm it. But while we affirm it and while we think it's biblical to affirm, let me now transition into why not everything Nestoria subjected to was totally crazy. The Nestorian movement has made some pretty decent points throughout the years. And let me just give you three of them. Here are three cautions. This is why I like to say that the Protestant church cautiously embraces the Theotokos. The rest of the world dogmatically embraces it. It embraces it with no reservations. We embrace it with caution. And here are three reasons why we need to be cautious about this term. The first reason is it is not technically a biblical term. You will never find in any of the ink in your Bibles Mary being referred to as the mother of God. And, and the reason why that kind of matters to some degree is because there are a lot of Marys in Scripture, which, as a quick side note, is one of the notes of the Scripture's historical authenticity. If you were writing a forged document, it would be very unlikely that you would name four people Mary. When's the last time you've read a book where like four of the main characters all have the exact same name? The fact that you read through your Bible and there's three different Marys we're working with half the time in the Gospels is like, well, which, it just shows that this is authentic. This is just, Mary was a common name and we're just recording history. There was, there was a lot of Marys in Jerusalem, all right? So the Bible knows like there's a lot of Marys here. Sometimes in multiple scenes of the Bible, we have multiple Marys present. So the Bible actually gives us language. How do we distinguish between the Mary who gave birth to Jesus and the Marys who didn't? And the Bible will say things like, for example, this. Mary's cousin says, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So, just using biblical language, Mary is not the mother of God, she's the mother of the Lord. Another example is in Acts 1. Luke says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Right? These are just, this is just a small sample the Bible identifies Mary, and it never identifies her as the mother of God. It prefers to use the mother of our Lord or the mother of Jesus. And so it's perfectly appropriate if you want to say, listen, Theotokos is technically correct, but I would rather limit myself to the language of the Bible. That's totally fine. You're not allowed to do that in those other traditions, but you're allowed to do that in the Protestant tradition. If you just want to call her the mother of the Lord or the mother of Jesus, I'm not going to call you a heretic. That's, that's, the, that's the Bible's language. And the stories wanted to say, why does the Bible give us these terms, but it doesn't give us the mother of God? That's, a, that's not a bad point. It doesn't solve the case because I would argue, I would fight pretty hard over a term like the Trinity, which is also not in Scripture. Sometimes these non-scriptural terms are the best way to interpret what's in the Bible. But that said, it's, it, it, it should count for something that the Bible talks about Mary's relationship to Jesus and never calls her the mother of God. Number two, the term really can be misleading, especially if you use it around someone who's not a Christian or maybe someone who's like a brand new Christian. This could really throw them off, right? I mean, because logical thinkers are going to think of it like this. Okay, so Mary is the mother of God. Got it. The Holy Spirit is God. So what's the conclusion? Mary is the mother of the Holy Spirit. God the Father is God. Mary is the mother of God. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God the Father. And guess what? That's blasphemy. That is utter heresy. But you see how the term mother of God could lead a non-Christian or a new Christian into that heresy. In other words, in Christianity, the term God is kind of nuanced. And the mother of God doesn't make that nuanced. Jesus, because he has two natures, this is kind of a nuanced thing we're talking about. And, and the mother of God doesn't make those nuances. 
So because it doesn't make those nuances, it could really lead to confusion. And Nestorius was right about that. But it could be misleading, not just in a logical sense, but in a, in a different sense. It could be misleading because if we continuously today refer to Mary as the Theotokos, um, one might think that this is an ongoing relationship, that she is still the mother of God. And I would submit to you, I don't know if every Protestant agrees with me, but I'm going to submit to you that Scripture implies that once Mary died and entered into glory, she ceased being Jesus' mother. Mary was the mother of God. She was the Theotokos. But I don't think it's appropriate to call her the Theotokos anymore. Once we knight Mary with this title, then we always think of her as Jesus' mother. But I'm not sure the Bible wants us to constantly think of Mary as the mother of Jesus. And I say this because I think the scriptures make a, a pretty clear-cut case that in glory, our family ties are severed. There's no such thing in glory as children, parents, mothers. It doesn't mean you're not going to know people and love them, but you're not going to have the earthly relationship you once had. Let me just give you a couple examples of this. Jesus says this in Matthew 22, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Angels don't have families. Gabriel doesn't have a mom or a dad. And Jesus is not saying we become angels, but he's saying just like the angels have no family relations, there's no husbands, wives, children, grandparents, there will be no family relationships for us in heaven. And the context of this is important. Jesus gave this answer while um, answering questions about divorce. You see, remember, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, generally speaking, didn't like Jesus. So they were constantly trying to stump him. They were always trying to ask him these tough theological questions to get him to say something wrong so then the people would stop listening to him. So the Sadducees asked Jesus a question. And imagine a man gets married and then his spouse dies and you're free to remarry when your spouse dies. And so he marries another woman and then she dies. And then he marries another woman and she dies and he goes up to seven. So we have a man on earth who has seven legitimate wives. And then they all die and they're all resurrected. Who's he married to? Who's he married to? They're all legitimate wives. So you can't say, well, he's, he's only married to the first one. Well, then you're saying the other ones were illegitimate. Is there polygamy in heaven? And Jesus responds by saying, trick question, there's no such thing. He's married to none of them because marriage doesn't exist in the resurrection. It doesn't exist in glory. There's no families in heaven. I also think Jesus, this is more explicit, I think Jesus hints at this implicitly in the Gospel of Matthew. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So even while Jesus was on earth, he was already starting to put a wedge between biological relationships and spiritual relationships. In heaven, everyone is your mom. Everyone is your dad. Everyone is your brother and your sister because the, the family of heaven is a spiritual family. All biological ties are cut. So if Jesus is in heaven and Mary is in heaven, Mary is no longer his mother. 
She has a, not a different relationship than everyone else in glory. So a misleading aspect of the Theotokos is people continue to think of Mary as Jesus' mother. But she's now just a glorified, perfected saint in the presence of God. That's who Mary is now. But let's lead to our, our third and final reservation. And this is when it's going to really start tying into Christmas. The first reason we're hesitant about this is because it's not technically in Scripture. It doesn't contradict Scripture, but it's not technically in there. Another reason we're cautious is because it can be misleading in a couple different ways. But the primary issue that Nestorius had is that this title will ultimately lead to the exaltation of Mary. That if we use this title, we will be acting like we have put Mary in this pedestal, on this, in this sacred office, in this sacred title, and it will lead to us exalting her rather than her son. And here's the fact, whether people like to admit it or not, um, Nestorius' objection has been validated by the history of the church. Mary has been exalted to nothing short of worship in the vast majority of Christendom around the world. The cult of Mary has grown out of control. Mary is said to be the one who secures our salvation. Mary is said to be the queen of heaven. Mary is called the mother of the entire Christian church. People ask Mary, they pray to her, they ask her to protect them from Satan. They ask her to procure their salvation from their sins. They will even ask Mary in their prayers to her to protect them from Jesus. All over the world, we have these famous, what are called Marian apparitions, which is just a famous word for Mary appearing to someone. And all over the world, we have these events that different churches have canonized as a true historical event where Mary allegedly appeared to someone from heaven and gave new revelation and taught new doctrines and, and, and glory revealed these wonderful things that the church has now embraced. Mary has essentially become a mediatrix, a redemptrix, a prophetess, and this angelic-like supernatural woman who providentially protects the church. They make statues of Mary and they bow down to these statues. They light candles in front of these statues. They pray to these statues. They light incense in front of these statues. This is idolatry. And you will find that in almost all of the literature, one of the most important titles in all of this idolatry is the Theotokos. We pray to the Theotokos, the mother of God. This title has really greased the skids to an exaltation of Mary. As a matter of fact, let me tell you one of my most fun to talk about Marian apparitions. Admittedly, this was once a very popular tradition. It's not very popular anymore. It's really only popular amongst a, a really small group known as radical traditionalists within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but I used to know some, and they taught me, I asked a question about these necklaces that all of them were wearing. So they taught me about something called the Sabbatine privilege, or the Sabbath privilege. The Sabbatine privilege. What is the Sabbatine privilege? This is a tradition that states that there was a Marian apparition. So Mary appeared to someone from heaven. And she gave this little cloth necklace um, known as the uh, brown scapular. And she blessed this necklace. And she put a special blessing on this necklace. And, and she, it's a cloth one. And she put a blessing on it that says, any faithful Catholic who dies wearing this if you die wearing this brown scapular, I will appear on the first Saturday or Sabbath 
on the first Sabbath that you're in purgatory, and I will rescue you from the fires of purgatory on the first Saturday. So God might give you a thousand years of fires in purgatory, and you will get out in less than a week. Because Mary will rescue you from the judgment of God if you die wearing the brown scapular because she put the blessing on it. This is the kind of blasphemous idolatry that has arisen. You won't find anyone in the first five centuries of the church talking about that. This is a novel doctrine made up out of nowhere. And we really do, I think it's reasonable to think that in the fifth century, when we knighted Mary, the Theotokos, it helped grease the skids for exalting her. Like this is a special title about her. It's an honorary title to portray the glory of Mary. And this is what leads us to Christmas. Here's why the Theotokos understanding it right matters so much for Christmas, because it is an honorary title. The council fathers used it to bring honor to someone, but not to Mary, to her son. The Theotokos is not supposed to tell us something about Mary. It's supposed to tell us something about Jesus. And what are we saying about Jesus when we call Mary Theotokos? What are we saying? He's God. We affirm the Theotokos not because Mary is glorious, but because her son is and was God. You see, we've learned some amazing things about Jesus this Advent. We learned that the man born in Bethlehem was our sinless mediator and king. But perhaps the most important thing we need to know about the baby born in Bethlehem this Christmas is that he was God. God came to man. God entered earth. Emmanuel, God is with us. Turn back to your text that we read at the very beginning, Philippians chapter 2. Read verses 5 through 8 with me again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Notice what Paul affirms about the baby born in Bethlehem here. Before his birth, he still existed. Before Bethlehem, Jesus Christ existed, and as verse 6 says, he existed in the form of God. If you were to have met Jesus prior to Bethlehem, you would be meeting God. He was God. He was in the form of God, or you could maybe say he had a divine nature. He had a divine form. He was God. But what happened with this God, according to Paul? He gave up, according to verse 6, he had these divine prerogatives. Because he's God, he has divine prerogatives, and he was willing to let go of them. He was willing to let go of this equality he had with his father. And what does it mean to do that? That's what verse 7 tells us. How did he do that? He emptied himself. This is just a poetic way of saying he made himself of nothing. He lowered himself, or better yet, he humbled himself. So he who was in the form of God humbled himself. How did he humble himself? 
By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He who was in the form of God humbled himself and can now also be found in the form of man. And notice Paul says nothing about a conversion. He doesn't say the form of God was lost and the form of man replaced it. He doesn't say the form of God was converted into the form of man. He just says he who is God can now be found in man's likeness. And this is why Paul here is teaching one person with two natures. Is Christ Jesus in the form of God or the form of man? The answer to that question is yes. He who is God is now man. He is the God-man. This is what's so amazing about Christmas. From the moment of his conception in Mary's womb, that boy was God. Another really famous text, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Read verses 1 through 5 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John begins his book by telling us about its central figure, the Word of God. And what do we know about the Word? We know He was eternal. Because he says in verse 1 and in verse 2 that He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning is just a phrase for before creation. Wherever God was, the Word was there too. The Word has no creation. The Word never came into being. He has always existed with God. You go into the beginning and you find God, there you will also find the Word. He is eternal. But we also know that because He's eternal, that must mean He's God, which is what the text affirms in verse 1. He was not just with God, and the Word was God. We have the eternal God, who the text also identifies as the Creator. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if the word is itself a creature, then he had to have made himself. Because anything that is made, the word made it. So if the word was made, the word made it. Doesn't make sense because he's unmade. Begotten, not created, we sing in our songs. He is the uncreated, eternal, divine creator. That's who the word is. He's God. And then what did that word do in verse 14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word took on flesh. God took on flesh. God became man. Again, his divinity did not convert into flesh. He took on flesh. He added flesh. So we now have someone who is both the eternal creator word and man. When we affirm that Mary is the Theotokos, we affirm that Jesus is God. And this is what makes Christmas one of the most important celebrations in all of the world. For at Christmas time, we remember the most amazing thing that human history will ever know. 
that God became one of us, that God walked among us. He breathed our air. He walked our side. And more importantly, as Philippians 2 says, he bled our blood. God sent our Lord to become our brother, as Hebrews 2 says. And our brother became our brother so that he could die as one of us. So that he could die for us. You see, at Christmas time, we do not gather around as a church to make much of Mary the Theotokos. We gather around her son to make much of him. Because at Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation that God became a man. The eternal word became flesh. If you're looking, what is this sermon all about? I'll give you something really easy to tell your neighbors. What did you learn in church today? Jesus is God.